really a snapshot of what has happened there at the end of Second Chronicles. Or maybe they are an expansion of the snapshot we see at the end of Second Chronicles. And so as we begin to look at Ezra, Nehemiah, if you found your place in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, say amen. Okay, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering, and for, uh, for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Verse 5. The heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, valuables aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer. And he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate our minds. Give us more illumination, Father, to see, to understand the truth of your word, to see how your word applies to our life. For you have given us the full counsel of your word that we might live by it, that we might be encouraged from it. And God, that we might uh, be uh, able to worship you and sing your praise even through it. And so, Lord, as we come this morning to your word, I pray that you would speak to each of us. God, that you would reach us deeply. Lord, that you would even stir our spirit within us that we might be prompted by you to follow and to walk with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is God is in control. And you'll notice if you picked up a a worship guide as you came in, that there is an outline there for you to follow along. So I want to begin by giving us a little bit of a background study about uh, what's going on in the time frame of Ezra and Nehemiah. The story is the story of post-exilic Judah. That means after the exile, after they are returning, or or as they are returning from the exile. One commentary, he writer, he says, The checkered story of the kings 
a matter of nearly five centuries had ended disastrously in 587 B.C. with the sack of Jerusalem, the fall of the monarchy, and the removal to Babylonia of all that made Judah politically viable. In other words, everything that was going right for Judah, or everything that Judah had in its favor, was ended and ruined when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city. But it really began back in about 605 B.C. In 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Judah. And under the reigning King Jehoiakim, he took Daniel and he took other chosen young people to Babylon. He removed all the vessels of the temple and he brought them to the house of his God. And it's at this point that as we kind of read through the narrative, we, we see the story or the narrative of Daniel in the Old Testament. This is about the time when it's occurring, about 605, during this first wave of exiles being brought from Judah back to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we have the story of Daniel and, and his three friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and, uh, and, and Misahel, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three young men or four men are, are in the, uh, the king uh, of, of Babylon in, in Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar's charge. And we see the story or you can read the story in Daniel and see what is happening in their lives in the midst of all this time and what's going on. We know that they would suffer through many temptations as they navigate this new land and this new culture as youths that have been taken away from their homeland and brought to a foreign land. But really, their story, that story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that story tells us and it shows us that they would suffer, or though they would suffer through many temptations, that that they would be, as God's people, uh, they would be challenged to live faithfully in the midst of a foreign nation. They would be challenged to live out God's covenant with them faithfully, even when they were surrounded by pagan culture and pagan influences and many temptations. Nonetheless, the coming years would be very difficult for God's people. They would have to endure a time of testing and, and answer for the violation of God's covenant. It was under the wicked reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, the two kings of Judah, who had worshipped the false god Baal and had offered their children to the god Molech and caused them to walk through fire as child sacrifice. And this was disturbing. It was horrible in God's eyes. It was a great offense before God. And in 587, things really went from bad to worse when Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple. And in 586, he brings this third wave of of exiles from Judah back to Babylon. One commentator speaks of the deportation by Nebuchadnezzar, saying that Nebuchadnezzar deported the fruit and the flower of the population to exile in Babylon, meaning that he deported the best of the best and he left the poor there in the destroyed village of Judah With the destruction of the temple came the end of the Davidic monarchy, that which had given Israel so much hope. They they know that through the line of David, the Messiah will come. And so this Davidic monarchy, it's, it's ended at this point when the temple is destroyed and all the people go into captivity. And then the people of Israel are left with some questions. They want to know, what 
what's God doing? They, they want to know what has happened. Is their God bigger than our God? They have questions like, has God forsaken us? Where is God in the midst of all this chaos that is going on? Will God deliver us? Can God deliver us? Maybe even a more difficult question that they're struggling with and, and grappling with. And then in 539, something happens. Cyrus, the Persian king, comes in and he defeats Nebuchadnezzar and he, he takes Babylon and the seemingly once impenetrable empire comes under Persian rule and in 538, as part of the Persian policy, they began to allow and, and send the peoples exiled under Babylonian rule. They, they, they were allowing them to return to their homeland and begin rebuilding their places of worship and this was known as the post-exilic period, the period of restoration Ezra and Nehemiah are, are these companion volumes that, that they, they, they work together to show us God's story of redemption. It's a story of redemption, of a remnant of his people from exile and their return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to return to covenant living in relationship with God. And so there are really three phases that that kind of we that, that the author walks us through through Ezra Nehemiah. The years covered in these two works are about five thirty eight BC to about four hundred BC. And these three phases are three waves of returning exiles that happen. Beginning in 538 B.C., there was the, the reconstruction of the temple through Zerubbabel. And this is Ezra 1 through 6, where Zerubbabel leads this wave of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's during this time that the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, so as you read through the Minor Prophets, you see the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah come to play or come to pass in this, this whole timeline. And it's through their ministry about 520 B.C. and following where Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene. Well, there was the completion of the temple in about 516 B.C. And then there's this 59-year gap between that first wave of exiles and the completion of the temple and the second wave that comes through, which is Ezra 7 through 10. It was, about, it was during this 59-year gap that we get the story of the book of Esther in the Old Testament and what's happening through Esther and, and Mordecai. But then Ezra in chapter 7, 7 through 10, leads this second wave of, of exiles back. And during leading this second wave, about 458, uh, the, there, there's the reconstruction really of the community and it's significant as we see the community of God being brought back together in order to worship Him. And then in 445 B.C. we get to Nehemiah and we see the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem through Nehemiah in chapter 1 through 13. But the theme of Ezra, as we're considering this morning, the theme of Ezra is the faithfulness of God's people God calls His people to walk in faithfulness. God calls His people in, in covenant relationship with Him to walk faithfully and to follow Him. To walk in faithfulness through worship and through upholding His law. And so this is what Ezra is bringing back to the forefront of the minds of the people. And so the first point I want us to see this morning is this, that God, God works on a global scale. 
God is in control, and we need to see that God works on a global scale. This is in verses 1 through 4, where we see how God is orchestrating, and His hand is upon King Cyrus. And so He prepares a vessel. He prepares a vessel in the name of one called King Cyrus. In fact, it says there in verse 1, Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God prepares a vessel in this one, King Cyrus, and he stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. The overarching theme of Ezra and Nehemiah shows that God is in control over the nations. He's in control over the leaders and, 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 and over all nations. And as we read throughout the Old Testament, this truth is confirmed over and over again. You see those references under that first point that God prepares a vessel. He stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. The, those verses show at Isaiah 41.2 says this, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. And then in Isaiah forty four twenty eight, he says this, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Or Isaiah 45.1, listen to what Isaiah prophesies here. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. And in Isaiah 45.11-13, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. You see how God is watching over His Word? And He's prophesying. He's using His prophets to speak His Word to His people to give His people hope. Jeremiah 51.1 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Lebkamai. He says in Jeremiah 51.11, Sharpen the arrows. Take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Then one other I want to share with you is Daniel chapter 4. Beginning in verse 30, this is the conversation Nebuchadnezzar is having with himself on the rooftop when God hears and then speaks to him. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still rolling off his tongue, were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. 
The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Listen, hear this out. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Hear me out, people of God. God is in control. God is sovereign over the nations. He knows exactly what is happening. He knows exactly what is going on. Think about Psalm 2, as Pastor Kevin read a moment ago. Think about God acting and being sovereign over the nations. Listen, God is not surprised by what's happening on a global scale. God knows the threats of North Korea. God knows the threats of Iran. God knows the harshness of the regime that's in power in China. He knows the malicious intent of militant groups that want to harm and kill, such as Al-Qaeda. He even knows the governments that are working in collusion with them. He's aware of America. He's aware of the immorality of our society. He's aware of the devaluing of, of life. He's not surprised by any of it. He knows very well all these things that are going on. He knows very well the harsh dictators that are ruling over the nations. And hear this. He will vindicate his people. And he will exact judgment on those who devalue life and rule with tyranny. In fact, the wisdom of God's word in Proverbs 21 one says, The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. Hear me out. God is in control of the nations. And there are times when he does unexpected things by unexpected means, but he is in control. And so here's what happens. The Lord prepares a vessel. He uses this king, Cyrus, in order to deliver his people, in order to send them back to defeat Babylon, who had brought them into bondage. He has prepared one who would come and deliver his people. Of course, this points as well for us in the hope of Christ and that God himself has sent and provided the deliverer, deliverer for his people God has provided one, and the one whom is Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has come, and who has delivered His people to restore His people, to bring salvation in the lives of His people, to remove the stain and the reproach of sin. This is what God has done. God is in control of the nations. The Lord prepares a vessel through Cyrus, but I... I want you also to see that not only does God prepare a vessel, the Lord also, He also preserves a remnant. We see it in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4 it says, Whoever there is among you of all His people, may His God be with Him. Let Him go up to Jerusalem. One commentator writes of Israel concerning verses 1 through 4. He says, All the might and power of the ancient world was under the control of their God. And their God had chosen to place it at their disposal. You see, God had led His people captive that He might purify them, that He would deliver them, and then renew them as a covenant people. That's what's happening in the scene of, of Israel being taken into bondage and then being delivered and brought back to Judah to rebuild the temple. And so God calls them in verses 3 and 4, 
even sent word through the proclamation of Cyrus. This is what they would do. They would rebuild the temple. They would rebuild the place of worship so that God's people could come and he could, they could worship him. And so he says in verse 4, Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and with gold. So not only does God prepare or, or preserve a remnant, God also provides for the work. God also provides for the work that he's called his people to. Listen, God has called them to leave Babylon and to go back to Judah. He's called them to go and and take on a task that is monumental. It's huge. They are to go back there to the place that they once were, the place that was devastated, and there to rebuild the temple. Ezra is showing us here that there's continuity between the pre-exilic people of God and the post-exilic people of God. That though Israel as a nation has ceased to be politically, that there is still a group who are set apart and set aside to worship Him. And of course, this shows us God's faithfulness in the midst of working in all nations and in the midst of working in the lives of His people. And it reveals to us the gracious eye of the Lord in fulfilling his promises to his people, that he's always keeping watch over his word. He's always bringing about his word to pass, always accomplishing his purpose. And secondly, it speaks to God's desire for his people to be about worshiping him. That as a people of God, we would come together and we would worship the Lord our God. That we would set apart and be sanctified to give Him praise and to worship Him. God desires that His people be about worshiping Him and worship Him alone. Not be divided in our loyalties, but that we would worship Him alone. I think the truth that we see here in verses 1-4 through is that when God calls His people to a work, He provides for the work that He calls them to. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, that work that was written in the midst of the rebuilding of the temple in this time, Haggai says, And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, he says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What has God called them to do? God has called them to go back into the land of Judah, rebuild the temple. And in the midst of going back and rebuilding the temple, God says, I will provide. This is like a second exodus. All the people, Cyrus issues a proclamation that all the people living in the area of anyone who is returning from exile, they are to do what? They are to provide them with cattle. In verse 4 it says that. They are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. They are to provide them with everything that they need. You see how God works that out for His people Same thing happened when they left Egypt headed to the promised land. They plundered the people because the people give them all that they have. And here we see that the people begin giving them so that their journey provision is made for their journey. I'm sure you've heard 
the quote a million times by Hudson Taylor where he said, God's work done God's way will never what? Will never lack God's supply. You see, the truth is this, that when God calls his people to a task, when God leads his people to a task, he always provides for that to be accomplished. He always provides to accomplish the work that he calls his people to do. Let us not doubt when God calls us to follow him, when God calls us to to engage in missions. Let us not doubt that as the Lord calls, he also provides. And so as God continues to call us and and lead us, Crosspoint, to make disciples from our community to the nations, we must not only hear his call, but we must be careful to prayerfully discern his leading and to obey his voice. As we pray in our home groups, we're asking God how we can we can impact our community for Christ. We want to know, God, how are we to impact our community for you, for Christ, for your glory? And we're, we're doing this through supporting, uh, supporting work across, uh, across this nation as we've supported Chris Mott and the work that he's doing in Boston. We're doing this as, as a church as we support, uh, support the work in Uganda and, and it has been through Bugari and, 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 and now we added to that through Busimbatia with Faith Baptist Church and Pastor Ronald. And we continue to seek God, how are you wanting to use us to, to reach and to impact the nations? Look at Mexico and what Crosspoint has done in partnering with Pastor Ramon Hernandez of Gilgal Iglesia Bautista. There has been a tremendous partnership there. Listen, that man has started more churches than anyone I know of. And the work of Crosspoint has been to support that ministry and, 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 and help and invest there by sending people and, and sending resources. We continue to ask the question, God, what, what are you wanting to do through us? How are you wanting to use us to impact the nation's How are you wanting to use us to impact this city? We continue to ask God to lead us in the work that he is calling us to do because the truth is this. As God leads us, God always supplies for the work that he calls his church to. Amen? He always supplies for the work that he calls his church to. And while God works on a global scale... I want you to see, though, that he also works on an individual scale. He also works in a detailed way in the lives of individuals. Let's not get caught thinking in the terms of simply one big king issuing a proclamation and a whole nation transferring back out of Babylon into Judah. Don't miss what he says here in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Then the heads of the father's households of Judah... And Benjamin and the priest and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. We don't have time to look at chapter 2 this morning, but chapter 2 gives us the detail of all that is going on, of all the people, the individuals, the father's households that are involved here in this transition and in following God as he is leading. But there's something else that I don't want us to miss. And that is that God also prepares vessels in the midst of of the individual's lives. Because in verse 5 it says, Then the heads of the father's households, 
goes through Judah, Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up. You see that? The spirit of God, or God had stirred the spirit of King Cyrus, but he's also stirred the spirit of the people. And this is really the linchpin of Ezra Nehemiah, this phrase that the Lord stirred up the spirit. See, God is the divine actor. God is the one that is acting and calling his people to respond and to follow him. God is the one that's drawing his people. God is the one drawing us this morning. And I I pray that God would even be doing a work and stirring up our spirit as a church as we engage in prayer and in our home groups and, and engaging prayer as a corporate body of believers seeking what God would lead us to do. One commentary said it, it was God who roused each volunteer to return from exile in Ezra 1.5. Then also it was God who roused the, the volunteers and, and roused Nehemiah's heart to tackle the first wall in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 12. And in chapter 7 verse 5 of Nehemiah. You see this word to stir up the spirit. It, it's the word that means to awaken to action. It's the word that means to excite or, or to put into motion by, by starting a work. Consider, just consider the individuals. Consider the, just for a moment, the groups, the families that are called and God had stirred up their spirit. Those faithful Jews who begin to take this journey and, and head back and, and face the difficult task of rebuilding the temple and resettling the land. It was a land that was decimated and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was left desolate. Their arrival and repopulating of land was like starting over from scratch. They were just beginning new and and beginning afresh. Can you imagine going back to a home of your parents where, where you had been raised perhaps and then had been forced out for many, many years and then you come back and, and the work and the task of reestablishing and and. and, and revisiting, rebuilding, all of these things. As you look around, you see the rubble. And then the work of doing this reestablishment and rebuilding, it's just, it becomes daunting and could become overwhelming. And finally, as you return, you look everywhere and you see the remnants and the reminders of what once was but is no longer. You wake up every day and you face that. And then you begin one stone on top of the other and you begin laying out the foundation. As we walk through Ezra, we'll see that they, they measured out the foundation. They begin the work of rebuilding the temple. But somewhere along the way in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, they get a little bit discouraged. They begin facing opposition from the Samaritans and from those who are living in the area who don't want them to come back and repopulate their land And as they begin facing opposition, they grow greater and greater in discouragement until ultimately they quit working on the temple. And then the foundation is left, but there is no temple built. And the the way that God had stirred their spirit and the the encouragement and the motivation that they had going in, they had all but lost it. And then about 15 to 17 years later, God raises up a couple of guys, a couple of prophets... And one of them's name was Haggai, and one of them's name was Zechariah. And these men of God come in, and they begin proclaiming the word of God and challenging God's people to get back with the program that God had called them to. 
In Haggai chapter 1, verse 14, it says, listen to this, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and he stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And listen to what happened. They came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God. And in 516, they completed the rebuilding of the temple and they reinstituted the worship of Yahweh, their God. It was tremendous. You know what happened? You know what the consistent, the common denominator was in this? God was stirring up their spirit. They were depending upon God as He was doing a work and and He was stirring up their spirit. You see, this theme of restoration is carried through in Ezra, throughout Ezra, throughout Nehemiah. We see it beginning here in verses 1 through 4, and then in chapters 5 through 11, we see it on in Haggai and in Zechariah. God issues the call of restoration for His people. God sets in motion this call of restoration for His people by stirring up the spirit of the people. And then God faithfully provides. They were in bondage and they were without a place of worship and and they longed to have the presence of Yahweh. They longed to have the presence of their God and that's what the temple meant. It was a place for them to go and to be with God. And then they responded to God's stirring And as they responded to God's stirring, it showed this new life and it showed new hope for the people of God. Holmgren in his commentary says this, Ezra is a story about the hope of rebirth. It's a story about the hope of Israel being alive again. They've been raised from the death of exile. Ezra showing God's people that deliverance and restoration are happening now. They're happening at that moment in history and it's exciting for God's people and they are to walk with God faithfully. I don't want us to miss this last thing lest we just dismiss these details in verses 7 through 11 as boring uh, historical facts. In verses 7 through 11, something tremendous has happened. Not only has God prepared vessels in His people, God has preserved articles for worship for them. In taking the people into captivity, into exile, He has also protected those implements that they use in worship that was significant in their worship of God. And so in verse 7 it says, Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put them in the house of his God. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And so what he does is he brings out these articles that they were using and he begins to count them out. And he begins to give them to the one who is the leader of the people of Judah. And as he begins to do this, He begins to transfer what was wrongfully taken from the people of God back to the people of God. And in the midst of delivering his people into bondage and preserving this remnant, God has preserved that which was necessary for his people to come before him and to worship him. 
And it offers proof. This is monumental. And it offers proof for God's people that God is restoring His covenant with His people. And He's returning them to Jerusalem. And we see it at the end of verse 11. So it says, All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. And then Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went from Babylon to Jerusalem. You see what had happened here? What had happened was God had stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus. And God had stirred up the spirit of the people to accomplish a work which only God could provide for. And God faithfully provides for the work that He has called His people to. God stirred up the people of Judah. He stirred them up to to walk with Him. And He stirred them up to follow Him. I want to ask us a question to consider this morning. Is God stirring your spirit to do a work for Him? Is God stirring your spirit? Cross point, is God stirring us as a church to do a work for Him? To do a work for Him in such a way that only He can accomplish it through us. Such a work that only He can provide for what we would do. I pray that He is. I pray that God is is stirring all of us to accomplish a work for His kingdom and to accomplish something that only can be done through Him and through His power. I ask you this morning, has has God been stirring your spirit to begin a new work for His glory? Has God been putting something in on your heart, something on your mind to do a work for Him? Yet maybe... Maybe you've grown discouraged as you've considered it. Maybe God has put this work upon your heart, but you've, you've allowed yourself to be discouraged and say, I can never accomplish that. Let me remind you, beloved, God is always faithful to provide everything that's needed for the work that He calls His people to do. He consistently, consistently shows that over and over and over again. Maybe He's been rousing your spirit to take a step of faith and He's, he's calling you. Maybe He's calling you to vocational ministry or, or maybe He's calling you to a ministry or, or maybe He's calling you to missions and to engage in missions. Or maybe He's calling you to make disciples of others and He's given you a, an opportunity to do that. And I don't have to say what God is calling you to do in order for you to know that God is calling and leading you to do something. Is God rousing your spirit this morning, Christian? Maybe this morning God is rousing your spirit to know Him. To know this God who acts in faithfulness, who is sovereign over the nations, yet one who has provided a deliverer to redeem His people in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe that is the one, maybe that is what God is rousing your spirit this morning to do, to begin a new relationship with Him. I want to challenge us this morning, Crosspoint, that we be in prayer about how God is rousing us, how God is stirring the spirit of Crosspoint, how we are to be at work for His kingdom, how God is stirring us as a people, and how God might be stirring us individually. Because the people had to respond to what God was leading them to do in order to walk faithfully and for it to be accomplished. And so as we close in prayer this morning, I want to encourage you to spend some time before the Lord asking God, confessing to God those things which He is calling you to, 
are perhaps asking God to show you a work that He wants to do in and through you. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we confess your goodness, O Lord. We confess, God, that you are sovereign over all nations. We confess, Father, that you uh, reign supreme. And Lord, we thank you for what we see in the people of Israel and Judah and how you have equipped them. You called them and you equipped them to return to the land. And we know, Father, that as you call us and lead us, you also equip us to follow you. You provide for everything that your people need to accomplish the work that you call us to. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and you would encourage us. That you would lead us and direct us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.